Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 15, The Sorcerers of the Pharaohs. She comes up from the swamp, is fierce, terrible, forceful, destructive, powerful. She is a goddess, is awe-inspiring. Her feet are those of an eagle, her hands mean decay, her fingernails are long, her armpits unshaven. She is dishonest, a devil, the daughter of Anu. In view of her evil deeds, her father Anu and her mother Antu sent her down from heaven to earth. The daughter of Anu counts the pregnant women daily and follows on the heels of those about to give birth. She counts their months, marks their days on the wall. Against those just giving birth, she casts a spell. Bring me your sons. Let me nurse them. In the mouth of your daughters, I want to place my breast. She loves to drink human blood, eats flesh not to be eaten, picks bones not to be picked. A description of Lamashtu, an Akkadian demon found in a ritual tablet meant to ward her off. My witch and my sorceress is sitting in the shadow behind the brick pile. She is sitting there, practicing witchcraft against me, fashioning figurines of me. I am going to dispatch against you time and sesame. I will scatter your sorceries, will stuff your words back into your mouth. May the witchcraft you performed be aimed at yourself. May the figurines you made represent yourself. May the water you drew be that of your own body. May your spell not close in on me, May your words not overcome me. The Akkadian Maklu, or Burning Ritual. They implored you to smash my weapons. Do not accept their prayer and their pleading. Do not listen to the words of the barbarians. Do not eat their bread offerings. Do not drink their water. Do not accept their incense offerings. Either by their witchcraft, or their sorceries, or their evil magic, let the weapons of my armies not be smashed, not be bound, not be defeated. I have treated you with respect. I have glorified you. I have honored you. I am holding the hem of your garments. Victory will be mine, and not the enemy's. From the key war ritual fragment. Welcome back to the history of witchcraft. After spending so much time in the early modern and medieval eras, I thought it would be a nice change for us to go back even further in time. And I mean really far back, almost 4,000 years ago. Since there aren't many written records from Europe at that time, this also has the benefit of taking us to a region of the world that we haven't covered yet. The episodes today and over the following weeks will be examining the attitudes and beliefs in witchcraft in the earliest recorded human civilizations. That means, for today's episode, we will be in ancient Babylon and Egypt, the great civilizations of the Nile and the Fertile Crescent. Naturally, the vast distance in time means that we have very little in the way of sources, and frankly we've been spoiled with the topics I've previously researched. There are no abundant trial records or lengthy theological tracts to scour to explain the morality and superstitions of the time. No, for Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, we are relying on a much smaller number of artefacts, but they are nevertheless a fascinating window into a society that is much older than anything we can really imagine. One of the difficulties we face in dealing with these societies is how alien they truly were. 
We cannot separate religion, science, and magic in these societies. They are all entwined, little more than shades of the same concept. Professor Walter Faber, formerly of the University of Chicago, attempts to define Mesopotamian magic by explaining what it does and does not include. From his chapter in Civilizations of the Ancient Middle East, Magic, in the sense in which I will be using the term, comprises that whole area of religious behaviour which tries to influence man's success, well-being, health and wealth by using methods based neither on rational experience nor solely on private or public worship of a deity. This excludes, for instance, the treatment of stomach trouble by using a traditional herbal potion, or the appeal to a god's mercy and goodwill through a certain prayer during the daily ritual of a temple. It does include, however, the enhancement of the effect of such a potion by means of a spell, or the use of a similar prayer in a private ritual to avert the evil effects of the birth of a malformed animal. Faber argues against what he considers to be the traditional view of a Mesopotamian society which is perpetually expecting divine or supernatural misfortune. He argues that, as this view is naturally based on surviving texts from the period, it is inherently flawed. No one would write down how uneventful their day was, and how non-threatening supernatural events would not require instructions on how to not be threatened. Dangerous or hostile supernatural events, however, would require this treatment, and so it is possible that this has given us a disproportionate view of the fears of ancient Mesopotamian societies. These surviving texts do, however, give us a great insight into the fears of these communities, whether they were commonly faced or not. One text gives us a fascinating insight into an Akkadian demon, or demigod. Lamashtu was the bastard daughter of the sky god, Anu, who was unleashed by Anu in a fit of hostility towards humanity. I read an excerpt of a warding tablet at the beginning of today's episode, which describes her appearance and her desires. One defence against Lamashtu was to wear an amulet of her likeness, so that her own ugliness would scare her away. Another was to create an effigy of the demon, and then to burn it, bury it, sink it, leave it in the desert, or otherwise destroy it. Another demigod, Amashtu, was often called upon to counter Lamashtu, although he would just as often be hostile to humanity as well. It was not only demons and gods that sought harm on mankind. The spirits of the deceased were thought to haunt the living when they had not received correct burials. In order to appease them, Rituals were undertaken and offerings, called kispu, were given to the spirit. Figurines, meant to represent the body of the haunter, were buried with full funeral rites in an attempt to remedy whatever error had caused their return. Of course, magical powers were not solely the domain of the supernatural, and humans were believed to be able to manipulate or beseech the favour of gods and spirits. To quote Faber again, Almost as unpredictable as the activities of demons or ghosts were the machinations of human sorcerers, and many rituals dealing with this problem are known. It has to be stressed, however, that black magic as a category never existed in Mesopotamia. Sorcerers used exactly the same techniques and spells for their illegitimate purposes as the victims might use to defend themselves legitimately. The only difference is that evil sorcery was done by secretly invoking the gods or manipulating other supernatural powers, while the defence relied on the openness of its acts. It is not easy to understand how the gods themselves could be fooled by this simple distinction, 
but they obviously were believed to act on behalf of the illegitimate rites as long as the victim failed to point out to them, in his own non-secretive ritual, how things really stood. Only after the victim did so could the gods be expected to reverse their allegiance. One of the rituals designed to negate the power of such a sorcerer was the maklu, or the burning. I read the incantation at the beginning of today's episode, but this ritual also makes use of a figurine meant to represent the sorcerer, which is the target of the eponymous burning. The incantation makes reference to the witch sitting in the shadow of the brick pile, which Faber argues indicates that the effigy was hidden from sight. This reflects the unknown identity of the assailant, which seemed to be an important element of Babylonian witch belief. Despite there being law codes specifically targeting the activities of witchcraft, there is no evidence that any witches were ever prosecuted by Babylonian authorities. One such law code was that of Hammurabi, the Babylonian king who oversaw the expansion of the first Babylonian empire in the early 2nd millennium BCE. The city of Babylon was, in 1894 BCE, little more than a small town on the Tigris River, in modern-day Iraq. This city, along with many of its neighbours, had established its sovereignty as the old Assyrian Empire to the north withdrew from the region and focused its attention on Anatolia. The kingdom was little more than a city-state for roughly a century, surrounded by larger and more established neighbours, until the reign of Hammurabi in 1792 BCE. Hammurabi greatly expanded Babylonian control over southern Mesopotamia, began building projects within Babylon itself, and most importantly for this podcast, commissioned the Code of Hammurabi, one of the oldest and longest decipherable texts found from this period. Hammurabi's Code was a set of laws, 282 of them, inscribed on a massive basalt stele. The code was placed in a public area for all to see, and detailed everything from the wages a surgeon should be paid, to the handling of inheritance and divorce. It also appears to be the source of the phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, setting down what punishments were to be given for what crimes, depending on the social status of those involved. A surgeon who caused death or maiming through his negligence lost his hands unless his patient had been a slave, in which case he just had to pay a fine, or replace the slave. If a slave struck their master, or refused their commands, the slave would lose their ear, as the ear was the symbol of obedience. If someone was caught looting a burning house, they would get thrown into the burning house. The punishments had a certain poetic justice to them, and of course, there were many, many crimes that were punished with death. Theft, slander, murder, incest, adultery, and removing an escaped slave's brand were all capital crimes. However, the specific passage that is of interest to us describes the method by which witchcraft was tried. It begins, If a man has put a spell on another man, and it is not justified, he upon whom the spell is laid shall go to the holy river. Into the holy river shall he plunge. If the river overcome him, and he is drowned, the man who puts the spell upon him shall take possession of his house. If the Holy River declares him innocent, and he remains unharmed, the man who laid the spell shall be put to death. He that plunged into the river shall take possession of the house of him that laid the spell upon him. Now, the Holy River mentioned is probably the Tigris, a river that had holy connotations in Babylonian mythology, 
and the trial it describes bears striking similarities with the later ordeal by water, which we covered in episode 6, although with one notable difference in that it was the supposed victim of the witchcraft, rather than the suspect who was dunked. If the victim floated, he was agreed to truly be a victim, and the person he accused of bewitching him was then executed and the victim received his property. However, this was hardly a get-rich-quick scheme to be taken advantage of. Should the accuser enter the river and sink, he would be put to death, assuming, of course, that he didn't drown. The strict nature of this process is held by Farber as the likely reason there is no evidence of a successful witchcraft prosecution. It was incredibly risky to make such an accusation. One thing to note in that passage for the code is the condition that spells must be justified to be considered legitimate, and this ties into the argument that magic, science, and religion were three sides of the same three-sided coin in ancient Mesopotamia. Dr. Daniel Schwemmer of the University of London, in his article Witchcraft and War, the Ritual Fragment Key, covers this nicely. Dr. Schwemmer argues that for the kings of Babylon and Assyria, war was not just a case of superior tactics and efficient logistics. These certainly helped, of course, but ultimately victory relied on the favour of the divine. As such, there have been numerous ritual tablets found, which detail the ceremonies that took place before a military expedition. The key ritual tablet, Dr. Schwemmer's translation of which I read at the beginning of this episode, is written in the standard Babylonian language of the time, and while large parts of the artifact are missing, it largely resembles other discovered rituals. The client of the ritual is the Babylonian king, while its targets are his enemies, and the ceremony was to take place at night. The aim of the ritual is the protection of the king's territory against foreign enemies, and throughout this text there are prayers to various Mesopotamian deities. Other war rituals tended to require various items to be brought into contact with the king, with the intent to purge any evil that had been cast upon him by an enemy. The theory was that the evil would be transferred from the king to the item, which would then be left on the border of the neighbouring enemy, so that the caster would then be afflicted by his own evil. In some cases, the hair and nail clippings of the king were placed inside a porous bottle, which would then be left at the border. In others, the king would have sex with a young woman, who would also be taken to the border and left alone, now merely a vessel for the evil magic. The key fragment, however, does not include these elements. Instead, a figure of a demon is created and named. Then, a white pig is slaughtered, and the king spills its blood in four directions to protect the land on all four sides. Both the figurine and the dagger used to kill the pig are wrapped in the pig's skin. This bag, which now contains all the evil, while surrounded by the pure white skin of the pig, is then touched by the king, who orders the evil within to depart. Then the package is left on the enemy's land. There are certain similarities between the practitioners of magic in the Fertile Crescent and those of the Nile. In and around 1350 BCE, magic was also an accepted part of ancient Egyptian society. Egyptian belief seems to have held that the world was created by Atum, and Atum had a son called Heka, who was essentially the god of magic. Magic was also called Heka, and all living beings possessed at least some Heka in some degree. 
Lecter priests were the most respected practitioners of magic in ancient Egypt, and popular stories gave them the power to bring model animals to life and to push back the floodwaters of rivers and lakes. Their actual role was to perform rituals to protect the king, and to weave spells around the dead for their eventual rebirth. Towards the beginning of the end of the second millennium BCE, the priests' role were gradually usurped by magicians called Hekau, the word being related to the name for magic, Heka. Of course, I have no idea how to pronounce these words, but I doubt I'm going to get any helpful emails from ancient Egyptians. Below the lector priests and Hekau were lower status magicians, who cast spells to rid an area of locusts, scorpions, or poisonous snakes. These pest control mages were joined by midwives and wise men and women, who provided medical services which were entwined with the use of magic. None of these uses of magic were frowned upon by the state or the clergy. Indeed, the authorities would likely have relied on these rituals, both as a source of protection for the pharaohs against hostile spells and spirits, and due to the religious nature of many of the rituals. It isn't hard to imagine authorities using these ceremonies as a means of gathering legitimacy to their rule. According to Dr. Geraldine Pinch of the University of Oxford, these rituals would often take place at dawn, as this was the most precipitous time for magic, and the magician would bathe and dress in clean clothes. The need for the performer of these rites to be pure meant that they would avoid people who were deemed to be polluted, such as those who worked with the dead, or menstruating women, and they would also abstain from sex for a time before the ritual. Not for the last time in human history, the written word itself is meant to have particularly powerful properties, not least because of the relatively low percentage of people who were literate. Spells that were written down on parchment or papyrus were of high value, treasured possessions passed down from parents to children. Spells were often worn almost as pendants, the folded parchment hanging from the neck or wrist, acting as protective charms. Spells themselves consisted of two parts, the first being the words that should be spoken, and the second being the associated actions that must be taken in order for the spell to take effect. The words were required to be pronounced correctly, including the secret names of the various deities being beseeched, which suggests that special training and education was needed in most cases, hence the importance of a professional cast of magicians. These words might activate the power of an amulet or potion. Potions had ingredients straight out of Macbeth, with blood of a black dog, milk from a pregnant woman, a hawk's egg, and myrrh, the incense. The actual ritual would make use of ivory and metal wands, almost in the shape of a boomerang, and I've put an image of one on the Facebook page. If you look at the image of the ivory wand, you can see that it is decorated with figures who are supposed to be powerful deities and spirits that the magician can command, and by using the wand, he can harness their power. The magician would gesture, dance, and recite spells, and these incantations could have a variety of uses. Some would be used as a complementary treatment alongside more mundane medicine. Many illnesses were ascribed to malevolent spirits, and using these spirits' names could either persuade them to leave the patient alone through flattery, or force them out in the style of an exorcism. When a mother was in labour, a circle would be drawn around her using the wand, and the deities at the magician's command would fight on behalf of the mother and child against any evil spirits who might seek to cause harm to them. 
Since evil spirits were believed to be attracted to wicked and foul things, healers would try to lure them away from their patient through the use of, of all things, dung. Conversely, particularly good and sweet things, such as flowers and honey, were used on patients to ward off harmful beings, since why would they want to deal with something as difficult as a daffodil when there is such a lovely piece of dung available? This is one of those moments where it's possible to understand the reasoning behind some ancient beliefs. As some of you may know, honey has antibacterial properties, making it a decent addition to dressings or salves. It isn't a huge leap of logic to assume that, in a society where sickness had supernatural causes, when something like honey showed healing properties, that it must have some use in battling evil spirits. Therefore, if evil spirits hated honey, which is sweet, then they must love things that are horrible, such as dung. Now in ancient Egypt, as in Mesopotamia, witchcraft was not solely used for protection and healing. These appear to have been the most common uses, but the Egyptian state also made use of destructive magic and curses, as did their enemies. Foreign sorcerers, and foreigners in general, were blamed for diseases, floods, and other natural events. Or rather, they were blamed for sending the spirits who caused diseases, floods, and other natural events. The Egyptian state used their own magicians against enemies. The names of foreign rulers and Egyptian traitors were written on figurines or clay pots. These objects would then be destroyed in fire, submerged in water, or buried in cemeteries, in an attempt to weaken the person who was named on the item. As part of religious ceremonies, the divine enemies of order, such as the serpent Apophis, were drawn on papyrus, or sculpted out of wax, and desecrated in a variety of ways. Whatever was left was submerged in urine until it dissolved. More human enemies of the kings could be cursed during these ceremonies, and any figurines sculpted to represent their victims were considered more potent if they contained something from the victim, such as strands of their hair or bodily fluids. There is a tale of a conspiracy against Ramesses III, who reigned from 1186 until 1155 BCE, in which members of the court, including one of his wives and several priests, attempted to murder the king for said wife's son to inherit the kingdom. Historians are unsure whether the attempt was successful, as Ramses does appear to have died shortly after the plot was uncovered, but the conspiracy's intended heir did not succeed the king. He was executed along with his mother. Many of the conspirators were convicted on counts of witchcraft, and by all accounts the leading schemers were all executed. However, examinations of Ramesses' body in 2011 showed a knife wound in his throat, which would suggest a more hands-on approach to assassination than spells or poison. Before we finish up today's short episode, last week I said the show was close to surpassing 10,000 September downloads. The final count was 11,876, almost 12,000 downloads in a single month, and as I'm writing, it's already over 1,000 downloads for October. Thank you to everyone who went ahead and shared the show with friends and colleagues, and to everyone who left a review on iTunes. I read them all, and they made my week. One or two were so positive they left me giddy. To those new ears, I say welcome, and I hope I continue to entertain and educate. Next week, we will examine the beliefs of Zoroastrian Persia throughout the Achaemenid, Parthian, and Sasanid dynasties. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. 
If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.